Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And as I continue along, uh, we... Uh, my guest and I, we had a cosmic first interview last week uh, talking about um, the li- her life as the spouse of a, a historic musical figure, Stan Getz, uh, somebody who was a, a genius and also an addict and uh, somebody that uh, that is absolutely needs to be uh, focused on more in our society and our culture because it both those things, genius and addiction, are, are paramount, um, and many, many people are dealing with it. Monica Getz, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. My pleasure. You know, I, I, this is something that was in my head. I, I kind of wanted you to talk to, my, to the audience about um, when you guys moved back to Sweden, um, the from what I can gather, you were living in a castle of some sort and I wanted, or just some sort of big house. And could you talk about the cats who used to come over for the parties? Uh, you know, was it who, who used to come in there? What was that scene like there? Okay. Um, first of all, um, it's a, what you what you assume there is a mix-up of many things. Mm-hmm. First of all, it wasn't Sweden that we lived in. We oh. lived in Denmark, actually. Thank you. I'm always confusing it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and um, we lived in a, uh, um, in two different main places. One at first when we arrived, my mother, uh, who is just brilliant at finding these places, found a wonderful. Um, charming house that belonged to the um, the property belonged to the Danish king but it was a charming unassuming beautiful house that had been lovingly best- restored by the um, head of architecture at the Danish school of architecture royal school of architecture uh, himself a brilliant man and it was just perfect for us we rented it furnished it had a little private lake with swans on it. Not pretentious at all, just wonderful. It was uh, in, it was called Princesses Dini, which means the uh, little path of the princesses, number mm. nine, mm. in Kongenslingby in Denmark. And um, everybody visited us there. And when people say parties today, and if you mention addiction, um, they think, oh, wow, raving. No, no. <laughs> Very quiet, sweet um, situation. Stan was mostly sober. He certainly uh, could not get um, drugs at all, which was one of the reasons that um, I decided to stay um, with much persuasion from our family in Sweden. We originally... Um, we're living in that castle at one time, but that's a separate story. That's my life before I met Stan. Stan and I lived in this charming place, and then eventually 
we moved to a place in Elsinore, right next to um, also an unpretentious house, but right by the ocean. Stan loved the ocean. And right next to um, Elsinore Castle, where um, Hamlet always is performed. And so those were the two places we lived. And both of those places in Denmark spelled out peace. Interestingly enough, I think this um, Professor Fisker, his son is now well known for designing these cars that sort of are like Teslas way ahead of their time. Um, are, they, that, are, they, are they Teslas or they're different from Teslas? No, they're different from Teslas. Fisker, um, they were called the Fisker cars. I haven't heard of them lately, but when I mentioned to my son that um, uh, I think there might be a relationship there between the owner of our house that we rented in Denmark and this designer, he said, oh, mom, you think everybody's related. But it turns out it is a smaller world, and it turns out that, yes, they were related. Of course. We are all connected in some way. I, you know what it is? We are. We are. But here's the thing. Because you, you helped Stan when he caught that, the now famous girl from Ipanema, you helped him get that onto... Many different platforms. That was, that was much later. I know, I know. I'm trying. No, this is my question, yeah. though. My question is, at that time, was Stan, in objectively, was he, where? What was his? How was he recognized? Was he a star at that point? He was not an international star at that point, or was he? A, or in Europe, they looked at him. How was he treated um, as a, as a musician there? Uh, and what was his okay. status at that point? You know. We've moved on from something that you asked the question, and I guess I'm so conscientious about asking you, answering you specifically about houses and things. I never got to mention <laughs> the musicians that you asked about. Yeah, no, that that's what I really wanted to know about. I want to know about those parties because, I mean, I know that they were re they were not raised. Don't or call them parties. Maybe you can call them uh, get-togethers, but they weren't parties. They were okay, um, cons sure. a constant stream of musicians. You see, oh. Stan wanted something to do, and um, he, 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 his life revolves around music. So I contacted um, a small club called Mamartra. That was just a little hole in the wall. And um, we got to be good friends with the owners of that club, uh, a wife and a husband. And we brought, Stan brought, um, and myself, um, Mose Allison, Oscar Pettiford, uh, an endless stream of American musicians through our house. And I remember specifically one barbecue. I wouldn't call it parties because that implies other things today, but one barbecue, old-fashioned <laughs> barbecue. family barbecue oh, that we had. I love it. I love it. Uh, where... Um, Ella put on a Ella Fitzgerald put on an apron, wow. and uh, Louis Armstrong um, fought with her about who was going to do the grilling. And um, I think Oscar was there, uh, Herb Ellis, um, Ray Brown, and many other musicians. Kay Winding came from time to time. And that one particular time was so, so unforgettable. Um, they started singing Ella and um, Louis, 
and I think that was the first time before they made any records together or anything. And they sang all night. They just, and everybody picked up their instruments. It was just one of the most unforgettable evenings in my life. You wow, know, that is, that so you, you are, you are, now you're, now you're waxing poetic, as they say. That is an amazing situation. You're telling me that, uh, the, the, that, so you had, I mean, Stan was, de- I know, I knew he was deeply connected to Diz, Dizzy and Sonny and Sonny Stitt and, and Miles, but I mean, the original masters, like Louie, Louie and Stan mm-hmm. were very, mm-hmm. Louie, Louie and Stan had Very a, close. You know, um, Louie was um extraordinary person. He talked his own language, sort of like. Um, Lester did, mm-hmm. and um, Stan was able to communicate, because Stan was a man, in the beginning when I first knew him, a man of very few words. He really, um, I wouldn't say he was inarticulate, but he was very shy about his opinions. Later, not so much so, <laughs> but um, I think I helped him feel secure you did. enough to express himself, but in those days, isn't an easy answer to your question because in those days all these people were not recognized the way they should have been in the United States. Of course they weren't. They were relatively unknown. Jazz musicians, it had its own audience, very select, classy audience, but its own audience. It had nothing to do with Elvis Presley and popular music. Absolutely. Or, Absolutely. Um, and um, but in Sweden and Denmark and Paris and London, they became gradually musical royalty. And I think it had to do a lot with the fact that um, Sweden wasn't held back by black and white um, prejudices. It wasn't held back. They, they were able to just listen to the quality of the music. They were always searching for something better. And um, I think your question about the people that pass through our house, in those days, jazz at the Philharmonic, for instance, they had all this really incredible talent, really wasting it. Um, But the the Scandinavians and the Europeans ate it up, loved it. and that little place, Montmartre, I think still exists today, it was legendary. And money was never a factor. Never, ever the main factor. It was getting together and playing. They were paid, the musicians, but no one in Sweden was making all that much money, or Denmark in those days. And no drugs, no street drugs. Can you believe it? It wasn't until the Rolling Stones came in the 70s that drugs just all of a sudden flooded um, Denmark mainly, but eventually Sweden too. Uh, you know, uh, this is something I wanted to, as 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 Stan's wife, I wanted. There, there's a story uh, that I read of him. You know, basically, like you said, he was not articulate. He was a genius. When you first met him, he was not an overly expressive person. And like most guys, had a hard time expressing their emotions. And he would sometimes, for whatever reason, the he would drink a lot. And it still wouldn't take the edge off. And he actually wound up um, 
in your house. He, he destroyed the house. He smashed the whole house apart. Well, can, can you talk about that was, time in your own? Yes, I mean, yes, I can. I can because uh, what really happened was, and now I'm, you know, alcoholism, chemical dependency now became my field eventually. Absolutely, I that's why I want you to talk about it. Um, and so, uh, it's not generally understood really what addiction is, but Stan was mostly sober because, for one thing, I wouldn't. Uh, have it any other way in my house so uh, it was only on the road really that basically he would drink he was a peer he became once he relapsed for the first time after he had been scared straight about um what had happened to him with going to jail and all of that he was sober for quite a while once he started to relapse which most people don't understand that alcohol and drugs the brain does not tell the difference so if many people think it's okay to smoke pot but not for people who are predisposed towards addiction and there is a gene there um, and I didn't understand that either of course but I eventually found out that Stan's grandfather killed his grandmother with an ice pick she died eventually of the wounds she didn't die right away hmm. but I met him later in life, and um, Stan's aunt, where he was living, never forgave him, never spoke to him, but because the doctors had told him that he shouldn't drink anymore, he was another person, a gentle little old Russian man shuffling about <laughs> with such interesting stories and highly intelligent, so that these people are actually two different people, the ones that are under the influence, often become uh, either violent or fall asleep, and it's progressive. It always gets worse, never gets better. Except for one thing, certain people are eventually able to become periodic. That means that they can drink for a period of time, <clears throat> and they can stop. They can't ever stay stopped unless they go to a 12-step program or a rehab that's usually based on a 12-step program. But they have to maintain that understanding that this is a chronic condition. It's just arrested periodically. So what happened was that most of us in the family never saw Stan um, as destructive as he would become when he was drinking. Also, he would become the same way from certain medications like in those days, um, jazz musicians didn't understand, or no one understood that, to, uh, for instance, um, sleeping pills, certain classes of sleeping pills called barbiturates. They would take tuanol, uh, secanol, these kinds of things. And Stan had a paradoxical reaction to those medications. So when he took that, instead of going to sleep, he became more and more agitated. This is how Marilyn Monroe died. She took these sleeping pills that were on her bedside, and she'd forgotten that she'd taken them because they also have that effect. And then she would mix it with alcohol, and then gradually her lungs ceased to work. That's how these people die from overdoses. Is they, it has a synergistic effect. It, Two plus two doesn't become four anymore. It becomes 22. I understand. The effect of it. And so 
with Stan, most of these periods when he produced these records post um, that experience in Sweden, um, he was able to stay sober for long periods of time. But when he relapsed and when he started to drink, he and it was as if the alcoholism had never stopped. He was that much further down on the progression so that his symptoms became so much worse. And that's what happened to Coltrane, for instance. He didn't drink or um, take any drugs for long, long periods of time. And then, unfortunately, he had a relapse. And thinking, having a memory about how much he needed to feel that high took much too much, and his body couldn't handle it. And so usually the vena cava, which is a vein in the stomach, burst from that onslaught of drugs and or alcohol, and they bleed to death internally. But I do want to say something about Coltrane Go while we're on the subject. Go we we usually take up a subject. A subject no, we, I mean we we're, we're, I, I just love where you go. With the, you, you, <laughs> you you go wherever you want. But yeah, talk, right. any, any story about well, training. Coltrane, any story about training is good. Before we forget, yeah, right. Because Coltrane was one of the ones who came in and out of our home, uh, hmm. wherever we were, and I was on a jazz at the Philharmonic tour because I know you're interested um, by listening to your other radio interviews in. On discrimination and those kinds of things. Absolutely. Well, we experienced something that was reverse discrimination, which was um, there was a movement in Europe where, and I guess maybe it was in America too, but I wasn't aware of it, where uh, the 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 students of the jazz art, so to speak, the typical. A German young um, reporter that this actually I happened to witness interview John was determined to get him to say that white players can't play and black players are the only ones that can play. That was like a movement in Germany at that time. Wow! And he was determined, and he followed John around, and John shared this with me a couple of times that. He felt uncomfortable about this kid. So one morning, I'm sitting in a hotel. We were all staying in the same hotel then at the Jessup Philharmonic. And in the uh, cafeteria, having breakfast. And there, sure enough, was that kid interviewing John. And they both sat with their backs towards me, so I could hear them perfectly, but they couldn't see me. So I hear this kid asking John over and over again, um, uh, to try to put Stan down in some way. And then finally I heard John <laughs> exasperatedly say, kid, we would all play like Stan if we could. And that really shut the kid up. And I couldn't believe how sweet that was of John to say that. That's a legendary quote. Uh, we and and you're and um, yeah, that that's been told over and over again. And that was the. That well, I heard it. I I might not have believed it if I hadn't heard it with my own you ears. You heard it with and your own people, ears. Yeah, and there were people around me who heard heard it too. And I just 
afterwards I just went up and gave him a big hug and he said, oh, were you here too? I just, talking to Monica Getz here, again, just just having a ball. I just, I, I just, I wanted to read this quote and uh, this story and then I want you to just talk about it as a, a spouse and how you dealt with it with your children because this is real life and we all are dealing in our own sort of family dynamics and there's and it's a, so prevalent it's so prevalent so here i'm going to read this to you and then i want you to not you don't need to talk about stan i want you to talk about how you specifically as, as a spouse of somebody who was dealing with addiction how you dealt with it he said okay, okay this is when you were in denmark after dinner stan felt overwhelmed by a mixture of sadness and rage trying to dull it with scotch he wound up going outside found a pile of bricks and threw them one by one through the window. He came inside, grabbed a poker from the fireplace, and smashed all the plates in a collection of renowned Royal Copenhagen China. How did Monica Getz, at that time, before you became an advocate that you are today, can you talk to people, how did you deal with that? You know, I'd forgotten about that, but that's exactly what happened. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. To, I'm, I mean, I don't mean to bring it. I just, this is, no, this is where the rubber no, meets no, no, the road. No. Yeah. This, is, this is my job yeah, right. to talk about that's these right. things. That's right. I, I, and I'd I love to talk about it because there's so much ignorance today surrounding this. I agree. Well, that was very, a very important evening, actually, because... It was much worse than you described. Stan had been fine. Stan's both parents were visiting us from America, so he had all the motivation in the world to try to modify any of his behaviors. But it's a perfect example of uh, the shock that the family experiences when you think finally he's on his way, he's healthy, he's playing, everything is going well. And some little thing happens, and they get into their heads. It's called denial that, oh, I can drink like everybody else, just one, you know. And it's usually celebratory. It was celebratory for Stan. So many people think, oh, you know, the pressures of working in jazz clubs and all that. No. He got it in his head that he was going to celebrate that he had been sober so long. And here was his mother, his father, my mother was there, who is a brilliant uh, child psychologist and a brilliant person all together who didn't know much about alcoholism either because psychologists and psychiatrists to this day, if they haven't gone recently to a medical school that teaches this, are in the stone ages about this. So that night, this all happened, and it doesn't say that the bricks that he threw through the closed windows was into the nursery where we had rushed immediately when we realized that Stan was completely out of control. Stan's mother, father, my mother, and myself, we took the children and hid them under beds and in closets because these bricks were flying in through the window. They could have killed somebody. And then my brave mother, who during the war went into the raging war to get people out of concentration camps, she said, I have the number to a doctor nearby. I'm going to call him because this cannot go on. And so she called him, 
and he was the inventor of antibuse. I don't know if you've ever heard of antibuse, but I, antibuse I was. We're gonna we, we have we have we're gonna spend a full segment on antibuse. So I we're, okay. All right, but I want you to. Do, right. This is about this is about a pre. This is about Monica gets before major advocacy became part of your life as to right. how you dealt with this individual who was in exactly. a who didn't have the who was he had this he was celebrating but then it went too far so he couldn't stop because he had that gene in him and he couldn't stop it's like um somebody going down a slope and all of a sudden the the brakes are not working accelerated 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 right and his mind shorted out and Certain brains, depending usually on your genetic origins, he came from that wild Russia, you know, and Mongols and 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 uh, uh, going berserk come from that thing that happens when people drink too much and they have the wrong genes. Hmm. He went berserk. So different than the kind of quiet peaceful person that he wanted to be. The alcohol took control of his frontal cortex, which is the area of the brain. I didn't know this then, but the area of the, I know now, the area of the brain that has all the civil behavior is the frontal cortex. Uh, what takes over is the primitive brain, and that is um, like a reptile it's called a reptile brain and it's the primitive brain and it you can just see how people in the olden age used to think how people became obsessed by the devil or something because right. they used all their intelligence all their um all their um sensitivity all their civilized behavior goes out the door and they become basically like reptiles they look the same they don't look like bombs but their behavior becomes very cunning, very manipulative, and finally also very violent. But not all people. Just the fins that are also related to the, to the um, native populations of certain areas of the world have more of this violent behavior. Um, the American Indian, you know, who has not been exposed to alcohol often get that instant violent behavior. Oscar Pettiford, for instance, had that same instantly, um, no, I wouldn't say instantly, but during the same night, you can look at your watch and see how they progress into that area of the brain and become more and more evil, more and more violent. And you know it's time to go home, if not time to hide, you know? Absolutely. So, so um, I was completely at a loss. My smart mother called her friend in the middle of the night uh, Dr. Um, Martinson Larson was his name. You can Google him. He was a brilliant scientist, and he had discovered accidentally that when certain workers in a factory were working, uh, I think they were making rubber in that factory, um, there was a certain substance um, that made them not be able to drink. They used to get an allergic reaction if they even drank a beer or not much alcohol, which is very common in Denmark. Um, they become slightly ill, like an allergic reaction. And so he developed this 
ant abuse, which is um, the, the name means anti-abuse. And he thought that he had solved the alcoholism problem in the world because all people have to do now is to take a pill. He was also a psychiatrist, and he uh, he came that night. The police came with two big Schaefer dogs, and the minute that Stan saw the dogs and the police, he calmed down. It was like he hoped that somebody would try to stop him. And... He went in the car with Dr. Martinson Larson, who was fascinated by Stan. They talked all night, and Stan decided to start taking antibiotics himself. And so he was sober for a long time. But there is only one flaw with the antibiotics, two flaws, really, now that I know about the beautiful 12-step program, which is sort of a maturity process that every addict needs to stay sober. But I didn't know anything about that then. Um, the other flaw with an abuse is that when the person themselves feel the urge, of course they stop taking the pill. So there is really very little control also over that. So eventually um, there was a Japanese study that showed that if wives gave or significant others gave it routinely every day and the patient had agreed that that was okay, the longevity of uh, the uh, sobriety would vastly increase because it wouldn't be a macho thing that I'm now taking a pill to stay sober. I can stay sober. Subconsciously, they, the sobriety lasted longer. But at that time, how I reacted, I reacted just like any other normal person would react. We just hid, and we tried to protect the children, and we tried to get Stan a doctor because we knew this wasn't normal behavior. But I can't say my mother, as respected as she was as a psychologist, had any more knowledge than I did. But at least she did the sensible well, thing. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's traumatic. I mean, you had five... Five. No, I didn't have five then. That This happened, I can tell you exactly when this happened. I had just had um, um, Pamela, so that would have been 58, 59 probably. And so my the last fifth child was 62. But I had my hands full. And after that summer, I determined to go to medical school to learn everything I could about alcoholism because this I knew was not acceptable. We could not, as much as we loved each other and as much as we really was the, the love story of the century, no one can live with an active addict and be happy. The, and you, if you think of the children, they shouldn't see and hear some of these things that go on because it's like living with the devil, living, you know, sleeping with the enemy is really what this is about if you um, don't do something about it. So I went to medical school in Denmark only, and it was hard for me because I had studied languages and right brain stuff all my life, so I had to go back, learn chemistry, physics, even to get in. It was very hard to get into Danish medical school. I think they had 200 applicants and they took 48, wow. and I was so lucky to get in. But wouldn't you know it, Stan, hated that I went to medical school because I think every addict wants a 
person that they can depend on to defend them and to protect them from their own actions and all of that. So he hid the car keys, did everything he could. But I persisted until I learned that in medical school at that time, never mind Denmark or Sweden or America, you learned just useless things about addiction. As a matter of fact, contradictory things that they really just dealt with that 2% of alcoholics that are really non-functional. By the time they're so sick, it's, they're really on their way to death, the ones that we dealt with in medical school. And it isn't at all helpful. That's much too late. You have to get in there and try to prevent the progression of the disease early, early, early. And they didn't understand that these are normal people like you and me, um, just with a different um, constellation of genes. And that um, anybody can really recover if you immerse yourself in the 12-step program. You become a better person and a more mature person than the average person. Um, But I didn't know anything about that then. All I knew was that this could not continue uh, with the children and our own physical safety. So, how did you? Uh, you the, the, this is. Um, uh, but the interviews helped at the time. So no, I, I want to. Um, this is this is also. I just want to go back. And yeah. I, and I, and you you are speaking with great candor. I. I, I mean. Well, that's what I do. Uh, no, I, I wanted. First of all, I'm reading. Uh, I'm quoting this thing here. Uh, Stan, let me read this here. What are you reading from? I'm interested because it is accurate. Yeah, no, this is the the Donald Magan book. Oh, well, that's a lot of stuff that was not accurate in there. Okay, but, but that and you can correct that. But what I'm saying, I want to yeah. go. I, this is where I get. Uh, it says. Just to go back to the beginning, and again, I'm going to use that five-letter word that you can use what you want. This is what it, what it said in there. Stan and Monica were the jazz ambassadors in Copenhagen. Whenever American musicians were around, it was a party at the Getz House in Elsinore. Now, we're not going to say party, but you, Monica, were an ambassador. You always have been an ambassador. Yeah. So, I mean, this to me is one of the most electric times because... Um, I, what I want you to talk about is self-preservation for the spouse. I mean, you, your life, he, he would, he would become, he wouldn't even know what he was doing and he would almost kill you. Yeah, true. And it's not, the question is not, why did you stay with him? The question is, how did you self-preserve? How did you save yourself? Because most people, I mean, some of these stories, you know, are, well, first of all, first of all, I know now, in retrospect, that, talk about genes, I came from two families of extraordinary strength and stability. Um, my mother and my father both, um, my mother on her mother's side and my father on his father's side had extraordinary um, wonderful, compassionate uh, lives that can only be illustrated. Let me see who would Americans know. 
uh, Raul Wallenberg were their childhood friends. Do you know anything about Raul Wallenberg? Uh, um, no, saved I... thousands of Jews in Hungary during the war. Mm. Um, very brave. My, my grandfather, my mother's side, um, and his father um, were pioneers. Abe Lincoln asked him to come over here to, um, to build the, uh, what's the name, monitor. Um, my, uh, just my grandfather himself walked from the southern tip of Africa to the northern tip in 1905, hmm. absolutely fearless because uh, we've all had larger perspective of life than just save your own skin kind of thing. My mother and father both went in. Um, no, my mother only, actually, although my father was brave, too. My father went into um, Spain during the terrible time of Guernica and the destruction of the Spanish people by the Nazi airplanes that were attacking, building a neutral um, hospital as the bullets were flying in the middle of Spain. My mother went into um, Germany in the middle of the war, 1942 or 43, and got people out of concentration camps. I come from a fairly fearless family and with, with things that I, I didn't reflect over at the time, but I always wanted to do um, good and kind and life-changing things for people. I had such a secure childhood. I think that comes down to that. Uh, my psyche was never damaged by Stan. I always knew it wasn't my fault. Right. This is a 12-step phrase, you know. It, it, it wasn't my fault. I can't cure it, probably. But at least I can do my part. And finally the turning point in my life of understanding this disease came not from going to medical school because everything at that time that was taught in medical school was useless, but by hearing about Minnesota and how Minnesota was about 40 years ahead of its time and particularly one place that originated all rehabs in the country that are worth anything today, and that's Hazelden, which takes us back to Bill Wilson, who in 19, uh, interestingly, uh, pretty much contemporary with my own birth, um, experienced alcoholism in himself and started AA. And then his wife, Bill, Wils Bill Wilson's wife, Lois, eventually became my sponsor in Al-Anon. So she created Al-Anon for family members, which is teaching family members that to do and not to do in order to be successful in having a normal, healthy life for both parties and for the children. And that was totally opposite of what anybody had ever told me before on how to behave and what to do. It's perfectly possible to live with an alcoholic as long as he's addressing his problem. And the good things about Stan was that he always really wanted to be sober. He always had the memory of that time in Sweden when he was clean and sober for a short period of time, and he felt like he played like a god, and he uh, was in contact with God. 
Well, this is a, that that that's going to need to be explored. You you were going to have Ella Fitzgerald sing at your wedding, but then, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I I I'm so surprised that that's in Megan's book. Yeah, yeah, um, we were going to have a big wedding, basically with the people I mentioned. You know, the people that were really close to us, and and um. When you say that you, you were you were gonna you the, the the cats you were close to in 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 Denmark, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but then, but then, that, but yeah. I mean that you you would say definitively that from the time that you saw Stan get the standing ovation, because it was the first time that he played since coming out of uh, jail. Uh, and well, it was one of the first times. I think he had played um, at the Shrine first. Um, there was some recordings from that. What I'm, what I, what I, what I'm saying is, like, the, but, I mean, mm -hmm. you, you, you had to cancel that idea because um, Bev was, you had to go back and, and get the kids. Yeah, mm -hmm. we, uh, yeah that, what happened was that the children... Um, needed us and uh, we couldn't have that second um stately wedding that we were going to have and it probably would have been lots of fun too with all those musicians um but th that wasn't even to think about because the kids came first um god just having such a such a tell me about stan's uh th this talk about i want to just get a few things clear um Goldie uh, had super. I mean, in order to escape in the ghettos of, of as a Jewish gypsy from the from the ghettos of the of the Bronx, you had to be beyond perfect. Did perfection play a role in Stan's? If things were not perfect in his mind, is that when the rage began? When I mean, I know he was an addict. No, I, no. Psychologically, I, I, I really I used to believe all kinds of theories like that, but now, you know, knowing what I do know and what I have learned, um, is that it is just an area of the brain genetically where the mind goes. It is some kind of a primitive violence, um, where I think. The brain itself seems threatened, and if you can think of all primitive people when there was aggression, attack was the best defense. So that um, a paranoia is part of that picture of violence. They are deluded, and they feel that everybody's attacking them, and so they're going to attack first kind of thing. It is very, very interesting, but it's not um, suppressed rage from childhood or anything like that. Well, let me it, ask you a question, though, because... Um, it's a knee-jerk reaction um, to, the, to the chemical. And it's so interesting because certain chemicals can predictably produce certain behaviors in rats who certainly at least as far as I know, can't remember their childhood and have <laughs> carry rages. You know, the, the, but I do think that there's a factor of, of Stan, uh, not just, just the fact that in ninth grade, he was on the road with Tea Gardens band and those guys would say to him, hey, that woman has venereal, has syphilis and you're going to sleep with her tonight. They tortured I don't believe, it. I don't believe that for a minute. That's a myth. That is, 
you know, Stan and I talked about everything. This is the first time I heard this. Hmm. I don't believe it. You don't think that? You think that being on the road 364 days a year, traveling relentlessly, obviously, you know, I mean, the truant officer came to get him. Yeah, and, and, and well, he should have. Exactly, but you know what? He didn't go, and what I'm saying is he was the youngest cat there, and we all know in these fraternal bands and things like that, you get, did he get exposed to stuff? I mean, there must have, there was a psychological component to it. I'd like you to talk, it's, it, it, I'd like you to just talk about the psychology of Stan, even when he was sober, what, what was his psychological state about? Because yeah, he was never diagnosed. And I don't think you would think that, I don't think he was manic depressive, but there was a psychological component to it, and I'm wondering if his exposure to the road... It... Let me put your mind to rest, okay? Thank you, thank you. Um, first of all, before I understood what alcoholism was, my family thinks medically, so they suggested psychiatrists. Um, I, had a, I have a, a cousin who was probably the most prominent the psychiatrist was he's dead now in Sweden everybody thought in terms of psychiatrist so poor Stan went to psychiatrist after psychiatrist you can imagine what that just cost but he was he loved talking about himself <laughs> and, and and at the end yeah. uh, we were so much poorer and he was none the wiser nor was I and it was endless and he was drinking and going drunk to psychiatrists uh it didn't seem to make one iota worth of difference and the cumulative answer at the end of you know finally they got tired of him and they would say to me monica there's nothing wrong with him except he drinks too much or he takes drugs and and he's uh, a nice jewish boy from the bronx with very caring parents, but they didn't. They couldn't figure it out. So now that I know what I know, we know from almost every rehab in the country that psychiatrists never helped anybody unless they themselves have gone to a rehab or learned from the people who treat people in rehab. But AA is really the only lasting revolutionary. Aldous Huxley called Bill Wilson. Um, and the AA movement, the 12-step program, the most revolutionary social movement of that century. Get out of here. No. Did you know him? Did you know Albert Huxley? No, I didn't, but I know people who knew him. Did you, did you, guys, did you guys spend time with Timothy Leary? No. But uh, Timothy Leary was a typical product of that era. Exactly. And luckily... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, luckily, luckily, um, uh, Stan didn't hang out with him. <laughs> it, Monica, it is such a treat to talk to you. You are in such amazing cognitive, you're, you're, you're so sharp. The, the, the track we let in with uh, was called My Buddy, and that was a collaboration he did with Cal Jader. Did you know Cal? No, I didn't know Cal, but I did know that song, uh, Stan loved that song, and he did. Uh, he made. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the piano play it out. He he made an album called Pe Peacocks. Yeah, no, Gary uh, Jimmy Rolls. 
Jimmy Rolls, and they played that so beautifully, my buddy, and they were really buddies. Um, I mean, I just want to say, yeah. I, I, I'm going to send you this later, because I've done... But I like Kyle Chater. I, I really do. I don't know him personally. I think he, that sounds to me, Chater is a certain kind of bird in Sweden. I think he might have been... Oh, you're 100%... Correct. He's from Swedish yeah. descent, grew up in St. Louis, and turned into one of the greatest Latin jazz vibraphonists in the world. Go figure. But, you know, yeah, it's, go you know, figure. Yeah. And Stan always had um, um, an attraction to the Latin, um, all of it. Latin beat, Latin Well, harmony. I mean, listen, I mean, listen, we haven't even touched the surface here. He leaned, he was, I mean... It, it, it was know. a natural. I've interviewed Stanley Clark three times. Uh, Tony's gone, but I mean, he was cranking through those uh, those Spanish Brazilian bossa tunes with uh, with Chick Corea all through this. That's more bossa, but the Afro Cuban stuff is beautiful too. It's Billy Higgins and Scott LaFaro. Loved it. You know, it. did did um, as we end here in the late fifties. I I just want you to be honest here. He obviously was super tight with Train and Miles. But Stan was a competitor, and he wanted he was getting at he was he was winning downbeat awards, but oh, that's a whole other no. I wanted to, but I, but I want I, I, this that. is my question. Okay, this is the this is this is important. Is that um, it is docu It's written that in the late he was getting anxious because Train and Miles were starting this new. Uh, movement in jazz in the West, and he was getting anxious. He was with Pettiford. He was doing his thing, and he was desperate to get back to America. And you guys moved back, and I'm not sure exactly where you moved first, but was that the impetus to move back? Is that he wanted to? He felt like uh, he wanted to get back on home ground to start doing stuff that was in his in his head. Um, yes and no. Let me let me tell you exactly um, exactly yeah about that. Um, we have lived all over the world. We lived in Spain for a while. We've lived in many, many places because he was always searching for um, peace, really. And peace and New York City sort of don't go together. <laughs> However, <laughs> I completely agree. That's why I don't live in there. I don't live in the East Coast anymore. However, he was always also yearning for that cauldron feeling of when everybody spark off one another. Um, uh, and let's face it, as much as New York is not a peaceful spot um, to be or to live, this is where it's happening, and especially in those days. But I think even now, um, I think New York is a cauldron of energy and spark and Certainly, uh, and, a lot, and a lot of tension too. Very a lot of tension. Yeah, but I I think he wasn't looking for tension. Stan was looking for just great music always. Well, and, and, and the best music, as you know, and I don't need to tell you, there's tension and release. So go ahead. Exactly, exactly. So that's where he was conflicted, and so that's where we would live someplace, and then one morning he'd wake up. And he said, I need to go to New York. And, you know, I really feared New York so much because that's really where also addiction is happening. And we managed to have a, 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 a quite a lovely, quiet life in Denmark. Um, 
he was earning decent money. He um, got his self-esteem back. He was <clears throat> uh, drug-free. He did have episodes with alcohol, <clears throat> but it was mostly just alcohol. So when he announced that he felt that we should abandon all the stuff that we had built up, our network there and um, the club where he can play when he wanted to and uh, the nice school for the children and all of that. It was really a big decision. But um, I, if I can say that for myself, my commitment was really um, to Stan, and I knew that, uh, and his children, and I knew he would never really be happy um, in a small town in Denmark. Well, I cannot so wait. I mean, we are. Ju this is where the rubber meets the road because I know when he came back that they he they were saying producers were saying, well, how do we regain his popularity and his footing here in the states? And they were saying, just do some just do some pop stuff, Stan. Just do some commercial stuff to get your name back out there. And he said, no. And we're gonna and it we're was, gonna and we're gonna. It was it was, it was I who who actually said to him, there's only one condition that I'm going back to oh. the States, and that is that you work with the best musicians you can find and that you really do what you say you're going to do, which is not just uh, waste your time getting high and doing all the stuff that he could have done, but really do the music that's in your heart. And we discussed that way before. We were very aware of what was going on in America at that time. We were very aware that, um, you know, these long solos and what was called hate music and all of that was going on. You're, you are nailing. I am so, this is so great. There was the, there was this, uh, I'm telling you, those liner notes, it was like Archie Shep and John Coltrane, that was Anger, again, it was totally false. Uh, unfortunately, white journalists like myself were probably dubbing yeah. it this, like angry message music. It was the farthest yeah. thing from it. Yeah. But yeah. we are going to. Uh, can we do? We, we we need. Can we do set three? Uh, maybe uh, sure. next week. It was. Uh, it was sure. I also I need I to. I feel. Yeah. I feel we we just scratched the surface. 